Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners, as I always do, because without you, there would be no Inside Personal Growth. And today, joining me, actually, he lives in New Mexico, but I think today he's joining me from Phoenix, Arizona, is Glenn Aparicio Perry. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Aparicio. Uh, Aparicio Perry. <laughs> Thank you. And the, the book is called Original Thinking, A Radical Revisioning of Time, Humanity, and Nature. And this is a fascinating book, and Glenn and I were just speaking a little bit prior to uh, us getting on the line here, uh, just about a conference that I was at called Pandos Populus, which I'll be writing about in my blog as well because it was fascinating. John Cobb, Her- Herman Daly, all of the greats, the greats were were there speaking about very similar things that I'm going to be speaking with you about this morning uh, with Glenn. But let me give you a little bit of background about Glenn. He's a writer, he's an educator, international speaker, entrepreneur, and visionary whose lifelong passion is to reform thinking and education into a coherent, cohesive whole. The founder and past president of Seed Institute, uh, Glenn is currently the president of the think tank, The Circle of Original Thinking. He earned his BA in psychology from Allegheny College and then went on to earn uh, both his MA in East-West Psychology and his PhD in Humanities with the concentration on transformative learning from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Um, he also organized and participated in ground ra- groundbreaking Language of Spirit Conference from 1991 to 2011 that brought together Native and Western scientists in dialogue and moderated by Lilo- Leroy Little Bear. Well, that is a brief introduction of Glenn. Glenn, you've offered to do a prayer for our listeners prior to actually getting into the questions about the book. Why don't we go ahead and have you do that? That would be great. Thank you, Greg. And uh, blessings to the listeners. Uh, Creator, great spirit that underlies everything we see, touch, taste, hear, and smell on this beautiful morning. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for the gift of being alive and for all our days to come. Thank you for the elements the light, the air, the water, and the earth, because we're made of these elements. Thank you to the ancestors and for everything that has happened to bring us to this moment in time. And thank you. Thank you for all the wisdom that we have learned, and, and let's pledge to pass that on to future generations. And thank you for the children coming in, too, with the wisdom that they bring. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this interview. Thank you, Greg, and blessings. Simple, Bless. short. Blessings to you, Glenn, as well. Thank you for giving us that that uh, very brief prayer, but something that we should all begin our days with. Now, you know, this book is is a deep book, but at the same time, um, it, it, it isn't a difficult read, so I'm going to tell my listeners that ahead of time. Um, while you are a deep thinker, it gets you, and this is designed to almost like, you know, give you a little bit of push to think about the way you're thinking. And in the introduction of the book, you state that the book's about thinking, the origin and the full continuum of thinking, you say, in the past and in the now. What is it that you mean about the past and the now thinking? Well, um, the book is intentionally 
modeled in the same way as a, as a dialogue, as an oral dialogue experience unfolds. Because um, I was so influenced by oral dialogue. So some of the language in the introduction is is more packed, if you will, that becomes unpacked over time. So it's just, uh, uh, for instance, um, I just wanted to intrigue people at that moment in the past and in the now. I mean, later on, I I really go on to 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 speak about the past as not really existing. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like what William Faulkner said, the past is never dead. In fact, it's not even past. Um, and in, in fact, that's really true because um, the past, if we think of it as we normally do as some event on some linear timeline and this happened then, then it's over, then we move on to the next event on the linear timeline. And in between, nothing happened. That's kind of the way they presented it at school. But the whole concept of a linear timeline is only 250 years old. I didn't even realize that till after I finished writing this book. Mm-hmm. But, but it's 250 years old. We'd never used that before. I had an idea that things shifted 500 years ago, and I talked about that. So... Um, the past is, in fact, uh, an illusion. I mean, all of time is an illusion and a persistent one, as Einstein observed. Yeah, and you speak about that in the in the book quite eloquently, as a matter of fact. You also quote this late physicist, David Bohm, who said that we were once the embodiment of participatory consciousness. Um, and And obviously, participatory is a key word there. What's happened in our Western culture and now that, that we might embody more of this participatory consciousness? In other words, it's like we're not in touch with the elements, you know, air, wind, fire, the earth. Um, and I won't, I won't say this is primarily being uh, precipitated by technology, but the rapid movement of technology certainly has... Um, almost created this, um, I don't want to call it, uh, disconnection. So why is this happening and what can we do about it? Hmm. Okay, so you have two questions, why we're disconnected and what is is the relationship with technology to that? Yeah. Um, The question about why we're disconnected is a very, very big question. the, the book is about uh, questioning some of the most basic tacit assumptions that we make in our life, uh, assumptions about time, that we're progressing, that, there's, that we progress on a line, that we're getting smarter and better every day, um, that, that human beings are the only people who are, or the only beings that have rational consciousness, the only human, the only beings that, uh, we're, that, that we're transcendent and superior beings that are then kind of looking out on the world, that our thoughts are separate, that somehow our thinking is superior to other, other creatures. Uh, a lot of that is questioned in the book. Um, now, what does technology have to do with this separation? Um, I would say uh, it has something to do with it, but uh, but uh, uh, but the word technology actually comes from techni, and it, and it originally was about art. So, um, ironically, um, 
the the greatest technology that probably precipitated the separation of human consciousness from the world was the invention of linear perspective in art. And that happened exactly 500 years ago. We we can pinpoint the date. You know, 1514, this guy Bertolucci paints into a mirror because he, with the best of intent, he wanted to paint the world as God saw the world. And what happened then, Greg, was that that, uh, another dude came by, Alberti, about 20 years later, and he put it in a book. He systematized it. He showed people exactly how to do linear perspective uh, to set the vanishing point and whatnot. He gave you the the nuts and bolts of how to do it. Mm -hmm. And everybody started to do it. And that wouldn't really matter, except that people began to believe that that was the most realistic way to see the world. Now, why does that matter? It matters because um, we, at that point, we start to shift the way we used to participate in the world. So we used to have this form of original participation. We used to believe that, that the energies existed in nature and they emanated to us that's what leonardo da vinci believed in the beginning of his lifetime but perspective happened in his lifetime and by the end of his lifetime of course he was using linear perspective a lot and he was beginning to shift to the concept that everyone was shifting to that human beings created this energy out in the world. That's why we create we created linear time as an abstraction. It's an invention of human beings, and sometimes we're very proud of that. Uh, that's certainly, actually dangerous. <laughs> we've certainly gotten caught up in it. That's for certain. And, and, and it seems to drive the Western culture. You go to other cultures, Eastern cultures, you don't find as much of an emphasis on it. But it's obviously very well emphasized, which which brings me to this uh, question from the Pandos populace. Um, you know, uh, Herman Daly was speaking and John Cobb were speaking, and I'll pose this question to you, yeah. really about um, the economics of progress. So the reality is, is what truly they've found out is that, you know, we want to always move forward. That's the way we think, you know. It's like we got to be doing something to move forward or to change something. And in essence, all that has done recently is burn up more of our resources. Uh, And we're finding out that from an actual economic formula, Glenn, that we're actually going in reverse. It's costing us. So I'd like you to comment on the actual cost of this thinking that we have about just constant forward movement and how it's actually devastating not only the resources of this planet but really how it's devastating us mentally beautiful well it still happens herman daly and john cobb are are some of my heroes you know i i wrote about them in in original thinking Mm -hmm. um and i wrote about economics uh, and I wanted to revision economics to really be its living roots, which is water. You know, and how does water act? Water acts in a big grand circle. Like all of nature acts in a circle, but water is a real obvious one where, you know, you have uh, water uh, that, that is falling from the sky and, and moving through. Uh, 
through the soil, permeating the soil, going into underground water, going into rivers and lakes and oceans, evaporating up in the sky and coming back down again. I mean, water is a grand hydrological cycle. All of nature happens in cycles. Um, when we began to believe that human beings didn't have to be beholden to cycles and that we can make our own progress, that really transferred over to economics, too. And economics, you know, in its roots, of course, comes from ecology. It's, it's, it's joined at the hip there with the word eco, which comes from the Greek oikos, which has to do with taking care of home, like when you were in school and you took home economics, which I think they still take. <laughs> I, just, I just met a, you know, a young like a teenager uh, who, who told me they still take that, which I was very happy to hear. Um, but, but, the, but the practice of economics out in the, in, the, in the hard, cruel world, so to speak, is not about taking care of the home. It's about uh, maximizing profit. It's a, and it's about pushing ahead with innovations, um, even if uh, there's perfectly nothing wrong with the product that is in existence now, but you know we need to make that product obsolete so we can have uh, the consumers buy, buy, buy. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of um, a, a way of thinking is, of course, not sustainable. Mm -hmm. But the but the economists like uh, John Daly were nearly run out of the business because um, for you to not believe in growth, in economic growth was considered such a heresy right. that um, it was hard for him to operate. But he's found, he's found a lot of footing since, and there are increasing numbers of economists who understand that we can't grow unsustained. We can't grow forever on a finite planet. We only have so many resources. Right. So, right. I mean, my my thing that I, I think we ought to be thinking about doing more is about redoing what needs to be redoing, you know, including redoing our infrastructure or undoing what really never should have been done. And in, in my totally emotional view, <laughs> get rid of all the dams, I would be happy because I think the nature of water is to flow and the nature of uh, watersheds is to have free-flowing rivers. And can I tell you a story? You know, I was... Um, I was in Costa Rica, and I was seeing all the waters. They were, they were the rivers there are so full of prana, you know. And we were there, we were there ostensibly to swim with dolphins. So I had this vision where I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a dolphin, and I'm swimming down to the bottom of the ocean. And then I realize at the bottom of the ocean that I'm a river dolphin. So I start to come back up to the surface. And then I have this vision from way up above the water seeing the dolphin swimming. And the dolphin is swimming on the, on the surface of the, of the water toward the mouth of many, many rivers which are all converging on the ocean. And then I have this, like, my heart starts opening and I start feeling the beat of Mother Earth, and it's all ecstasy. It's just fantastic. And that's, that's the way I felt in Costa Rica. Um, but when I came home to the Rio Grande, which is the trickle of its old self, and I was talking to Grandfather Leo Secretario about that vision, he said to me, Glenn, your vision is a good one because the rivers of the Earth are Mother Earth's ventricles. 
And when you dam up those rivers, you, that's why we have so much cardiovascular problem on this planet. Hmm. That was a isn't that a, a wonderful idea? And uh, I actually think it's very very true. It's interesting. Well, you know, you know, obviously we need to regain and rethink about uh, Herman Daly's thoughts there and John Cobb. Uh, because it is so important to not just forge forward, but to really learn, like you said, to stay in the flow. Now, you laid your book out in a really interesting way. You have four parts. You call it Origin, Departure, Return, Renewal. Um, Now, that is a cycle. But can you explain what your purpose was for kind of laying the book out in that way for the listeners? Um, Sure. Uh, real simply, again, I was trying to trying to mimic as best as you can within a written form an oral dialogue circle. And so the book is laid out in four parts, and each part has a question. So part one's question is, is it possible to come up with an original thought, which was the real seed question of the whole book. Um, part two is, what does it mean to be human? Which was a question Spirit wanted me to answer. <laughs> Good. Part three was how is our thinking creating the world and what is now emerging? And part four is how can education promote the renewal of original thinking? So, you know, part one, I laid that book out like that very intentionally so that there is a folding, um, so that it's not a uh, didactic argument. And I, I think, you know, listeners will enjoy that because, or readers, when you're, you're listening now, if you're reading later, you'll enjoy it because, because um, most books are just, uh, I don't mean to disparage the books, but, you know, um, most books today, because we're in a very linear, rational culture, are information-based. Mm-hmm. And so um, you could skim through them and you could pick out information. This book is not like that. Um, because it's really modeled after the way books were written a very long time ago, or you could at least go back as far as like Emerson or Thoreau or something. It's more of a leisurely pace, an essay that takes you on a little on a journey. I call it like the journey of a tracker, because you, you can pick up the book from any place, but you have to kind of follow with it, and you go a little bit deeper, and you get a little bit more feeling. Definitely. Oh, it it does. Now, one of the things that you mention in the book is that in Western consciousness, the meaning of original thought is bound by time. We were just talking about that. And the progressive forward movement. Um, we talked a little bit, but and then, and then you talked about the flow of water in your, storage, your story about you know, Costa Rica. What are some of the, the pitfalls of both being bound by time and this thought of progressive movement forward in our thinking? Um, well, those are, those are deep questions. I mean, what, what is time? I mean, that's uh, uh, something that, that I investigate. Well, it's something I, we I made com- up that we say is linear, right? But the reality yeah, I, is there is well, no time. Well, is there, is there such a thing as time? I mean, is, is, is the natural rhythms in nature, perhaps that's time. Uh, you mm-hmm. know? Or as Grandfather Leon said, time is the 
fifth element. Yeah, and that was um, my next question about Grandfather Leon. So oh, yeah? Together, oh, it can... is the, the fifth element. What is the fifth element? Well, I thought that was pretty cool. Well, when Grandfather Leon said time is the fifth element, that really gave me pause. It was something I had to think about for a long time. So if you're a listener... So put in context, if you would, Glenn, who Grandfather Leon is so that people uh-huh. must know who Sure, is. sure. I could. <laughs> um, I could, and I could tell you a story about something that happened at Grandfather Leon's if you have the time, <laughs> if you have the linear time. <laughs> but... but um, uh, Grandfather Leon was a very dear elder. Uh, uh, he was the head man of the Canyoncito Band of Navajo. Um, um, were their own kind of distinct band. They're considered part of big Navajo tribe, but they're, they have a unique um, uh, history. Uh, um, I've been to their sacred grounds, um, and they claim to have come up from the earth there, and there's there's some reason to believe that. For me, I do believe that because uh, of the uh, of, of the things that are on their sacred grounds. They 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 they've been there a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but a- anyway, um, when he said time is the fifth element, uh, and he used to say the four elements were light, air, water, and earth. What could that possibly mean? Um, when I one day I came to a realization and, uh, that for me, what time as the fifth element means is that 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 uh, all the elements enfold, surround, permeate us. We are water. We're seventy percent water, just like the oceans of the earth. We are air. We are light. We are earth. We are minerals. We have within our body. Um, so if time is within our body also and outside our body, then we must have all the time in the world if it's an element. We are able to unfold time from our body like a spider unfolds its web from its belly. Um, that's the way I think about time. So I really want to connect with time in my belly and then allow it to unfold. And uh, therefore, I don't need to rush. You know, things happen at their own pace. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very beautiful way of looking at it, which reframes all the stress and anxiety we have over time. Well, it's also a, a very beautiful way to live. The question is, is how many of us can actually uh, take the proper steps to transform our lives to actually live that way, which brings me to the next chapter. You have this chapter on purpose, potential, and responsibility of being human in the world, and you speak about purpose. What is your purpose on being human, and why should our listeners attempt to find their calling or their purpose? Mm. Well, um... I'm pretty careful in the book to say that um, it's not my role to say what the purpose uh, of any individual is. Um, That's for each individual to 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 figure out. out. Uh, And uh, everybody is on their own unique journey, and we have to just respect that. Uh, I, for me, in a very general way, the purpose of being alive is to find out what it means to be human, and that's a journey. Uh, that's that's a, um, for me. It's a, unf- a f- 
continual unfolding of greater and greater connection with all there is, as opposed to the prevailing trend, which is a continuing of separation and emphasis on what makes humans unique. I, 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 I try to deconstruct a lot of the things that are falsely believed um, make humans unique in the book. You mm-hmm. know I mean? so, so I, I look at some of the key things that we're always trotting out is to say why humans are superior. One, one is language um, and one is rational thought. Mm-hmm. And both of them are really ultimately come from nature. So, I mean, again, going back to Costa Rica, when I was there, and I'm feeling the rushing of rivers and um, feeling the, you know, the rivers that are kind of sneaking through my existence, and the, there's monkeys calling and birds. Uh, there's so many birds, of course, in any rainforest uh, and that, are, that are making immense... Uh, uh, it's not a cacophony of sound. It's beautiful, but mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, too often called that. It's, it's very beautiful, but it's very intense. Out of that... There's, it so happens that where there's rainforest, where there's the most biodiversity, there's also the most linguistic diversity just for human beings. But, uh, um, but I think that what happens really is that language actually emerges from the land. Those sounds land become human language. And actually, I believe it's because the, the critters have their own language. They have their own language. And, you know, thank, thank goodness in some ways for the Internet now. You know, um, uh, now I see on, you know, Facebook all the time, people are finally beginning to observe and, and, and share how the many ways that animals, other than human animals, communicate and have compassion and feeling, emotion. All of that stuff is very real and emergent from the land. And we, we separated our consciousness so far that we kind of forgot what uh, uh, was going on in nature. Oh, yeah. It's, it's very apparent that, you know, we're out of balance. And, yeah. and you, you state that rational thinking is the, uh, you were just talking about it, is the opposite of living thought. That's your term. It is more of a disconnected scavenger feeding off of the dead tissue of once living knowledge, is what you said. How, for our listeners, should we transform our thinking to become interconnected with our environment and the world around us? In your estimation, you know, from Glenn's perspective, uh, how does that, how does that look? How does that feel? the key is to is to go back to the roots of all of these words. So rational thinking, it kind of, you know, it really we attribute that to the Greeks, but we fall, which is true, but we falsely attribute it to uh, a Greek culture that never really was the way we imagine it to be. The Greeks were far more sensual and and immersed in the world than we are today. Um, except actually, you know, I've hung out in Greece and to some extent <laughs> it's still going on there. But, but, but the, um, um, what, uh, what we have forgotten is that rational comes from ratio, which means a relationship between things. That's mm-hmm. why for the, for the Greeks, the, uh, 
it was all about beauty, about having divine proportion, the sacred ratio or golden mean. It was about um, harmony between things. So we could have rational thought as a beautiful, elegant way of thinking, but we need to first make that based in the living world. Then, you know, so trust our gut instincts, trust our emotions, trust our heartfelt yearnings, trust our intuitions, and allow rational thought to flower later. You know, there's nothing wrong with rational thought if it's if it's based in living nature. It's only when we try to jump to it too quickly that we become disconnected, discombobulated, and we don't have any fun. You know, you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, no, it's it's, not fun. it's true. It 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 obviously um, it was almost like your your analogy to the flowing water, right? It's it, yeah. we've we and and what the one of the Indians said was. You know, that's why we've created so much heart dis-ease. Um, I think things do need to flow, and frequently we try and direct the flow of everything. And the reality is we don't often just let things be. And I think part of this is about trying to understand that it's okay, um, that we don't need to resist that, right? So one of the things that yeah. you mentioned was that in... Um, you mentioned Krishnamurti, and you referenced him in the in the book, to the sense of emptiness or no thought, as a direct perception, which might be as close to original thought as possible. If this is so, how do my listeners find and explore and practice emptiness to regain insight, wonder, and fulfillment in their lives? Mm. Because Krishnamurti was was probably one of the, you know, I, I've read much of Krishnamurti, but that whole concept of emptiness and no thought, and you saying that it's the direct perception, but it's as close as you can be to original thought. How do we right. regain that? How do right. how do right. we regain and and this wonderment, this fulfillment? this particular feeling of this emptiness, which is really the spot that creates original thought. Right. That's very important to empty out. Krishnamurti was a, was a very, um, very skeptical of thought um, and very close examiner of how thought arises in the world. Um, so Krishnamurti said something which I wrote about, which is that all he said a statement, all thought is divisive. And he said that because he wanted to draw laser attention uh, to thought in a way that people would examine it more closely. Um, but it's a bit of a koan, because you can also read in Krishnamurti later on where he he does talk about, just like you were speaking about, Greg, when you've allowed thought to subside, when you are in a complete empty space, and then you see a thought arising, not with your mind, not, not trying to project onto it, but it just simply arises through you. Um, and if you're able to uh, experience that, then that's original thought. That's that's thought that is not conditioned, because that was one of Krishnamurti's big, big um, points, is that most of our thinking is conditioned by society. Uh, so, yes, it's a very hard process, but 
but to the extent that we can let go of the infrastructures we're holding on to, let go of the biases and conditioning that we have, let go of the thinking process um, and come to a clear lake, a center place of calmness, then original thought arises. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that, that really is uh, um, very consonant with the message I'm, I'm trying to get. And, and I think it's true with prayer or meditation or contemplation or any of the elements of, from the spiritual practices to actually empty the mind and get in touch with basically spirit. I mean, when people meditate, the whole idea is to move all of those thoughts that are coming in out as quickly as possible to get to a space where they can make that deeper connection. And it doesn't matter what practice it is that we use, journaling, writing, meditation, contemplation, walks in the park, walks with nature, walks on the beach, any of those things where you're connecting with nature are probably some of the best things. Glenn, it's been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and talking about original thinking. I could speak with you for hours about this book, but I'm just going to encourage my listeners to go get a copy of Original Thinking, a radical revisioning of time, humanity, and nature. And the book also, you can also look the book up at www.originalthinking.us. That's Original Thinking. US. We'll have a link to that website, which is Glenn's website, on our blog as well. Glenn, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, it's been a pleasure spending a few minutes with you to give our listeners more of an idea of what your book is about. And I will state that um, the, the book will get you to think deep, will get you to rethink how you're thinking. And also, uh, for Glenn has an organization, which is listed in the back of the book, I might say, which is called the Circle of Original Thinking. And that is at originalthinking.us as well. And that's his vision is of the Circle of Original Thinking is to restore thinking to its origins and full spectrum in tune with the way nature thinks in order to create a more whole and just world for all our relations on our beautiful planet. It's a very, very noble um, uh, thought. And Glenn, I wish you the best with that. And I'm going to direct my listeners, if they want to get involved with you in any way, to actually go to your website and make a connection with Glenn. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth uh, today. Thank you, Greg. It's a wonderful pleasure. Pleasure is mine.